0: My conversation today is with Dr. Mike Rucker. Dr. Rucker is the author of the book, The Fun Habit, which is a book that dives into the what, how, and why of fun and its benefits to our physical and mental well-being. Not only does Mike talk about the benefits of fun, but he also suggests reasons why we may want to rethink how we've been conditioned to pursue happiness. So, Mike, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because... I've always been fascinated by positive psychology and the science of happiness and what you talk about in your book is really a unique approach. And I think we could all benefit a lot from reframing our perspective of happiness and fun to just be able to live a more fulfilling life. So thank you so much for coming on here and having this conversation with me today.
1: Oh my goodness. Thanks for having me.
0: So you have always kind of been a student of positive psychology interested in the field, which I think is great. I think there's a lot of alignment in our interests and the work and the impact that we want to have. Um, I would love if you, we could just start out by you taking me back to like 2016. And if you could share the story that really led into actually diving into the topic of fun specifically, and ultimately writing your new book.
1: Yeah, so it starts a little bit before that to your point. I've been a purveyor of positive psychology since it really became sort of a tribe. This gentleman by the name of Marty Segleman, who teaches out of pen, and uh, one of his colleagues, Sentmihai, who most people know, wrote this book called Flow. Um, so folks that are familiar with positive psychology know his work, but they created this consortium of practitioners in the space. And so um, I really got into it once that was formed And had been following all the wisdom of positive psychology up until 2016. And um, why that's important is I think also being A-type, I was probably over-optimizing my life for (laughs) happiness, like literally still to this day that I use sometimes, but not as diligently as I did, you know, have a spreadsheet that looks at like, hey, how was today? And, you know, like, what did I do? Looking for correlations and things of that nature, Um, But what happened in 2016 was uh, my younger brother unexpectedly passed away from a pulmonary embolism. And then I also learned after being a runner for most of my life that I had a hip injury that the only way to remediate it was to get a hip replacement. And that, that meant at my young age, I wasn't going to run again. And so here are these two things that are pretty big deal, right? I mean, it's losing my brother essentially, you know, Obviously, an immense amount of grief, but also now an only child, you know, dealing with my parents and, and the fallout of trying to help them navigate through that. And then also, this way that I, you know, this method of mitigating anxiety and stress that have been so helpful and being told. You know, not only can you not do that, but it was really part of my identity too. I really loved running marathons and I was starting to do things like I had a couple Ironman uh, under my belt, which actually might have been a reason that I needed hip replacement in the first place. But I was like, you know what? You know, I'm an optimist. I, I see the world in a positive light. I can will myself out of this malaise. And paradoxically, the more that I tried to do that, you know, kind of good vibes only, the more miserable I was becoming. And so that was really the beginning of that journey, this awareness, like, wow, okay, at least in the context of where I find myself, you know, this idea of trying to will yourself to be happy is actually pretty counterproductive, you know, putting me in a pretty dark place. And being a researcher, I had to go out and figure out why (laughs) similar to to, (laughs) the journey I think you had at 16. And so that's what I did, you know, I had uh, was just finishing up my doctoral work in organizational psychology. So I had access to PubMed and, you know, ways to get some of the cutting edge research in this um, space. And I really latched on to one researcher out of um, the University of California, Berkeley, her name's Dr. Iris Mouse, who had been looking at this um, and published some early work around that time that folks that are overly concerned with happiness. So not necessarily valuing happiness or wanting us to all be happy, but folks that are like constantly like, Oh, you know, what can I do to be a little bit more happy or like, wow, they're, you know, what they're doing is really cool. You know, how can I get my life into that space instead of being more mindful of like, you know, happiness is where our feet are are some of the most unhappy people to the point now that we know know folks that really live in that space it's a pretty direct path to clinical outcomes like anxiety and depression and so as i started to become aware that you know this good vibes only mentality is quite problematic i wanted to figure out okay that's great as far as awareness but what do we do instead and so we can live joyfully in any moment as long as we're not kind of categorizing it and really worrying about the outcome right i mean we have the agency and autonomy to schedule our week however we want and you know longitudinally just have a really good time without worrying about you know where is this end where's this finish line where's this trophy i'm gonna get for being the happiest person on earth or whatever it is you're looking for yeah
0: and it's interesting that you bring that up the more happy we try to become we ironically do the opposite and we know more about happiness than we ever have before too just from a general society even not just talking about specifically the people who are maybe type a overachievers and hyper optimizing we know more about happiness than we ever have before when it comes to the information that we have and the tools that we have but we continue to see this rise in depression and and suicide rates and mental health is is continually getting worse and so talking about the population as a whole then too why do you think we're less happy despite having more information and tools than we've ever had before? So,
1: here in the West specifically, I think there are a couple of things going on, right? One is with regards to the ability just to enjoy ourselves and engage in pro social behavior, we are the second to last in the developed world with regards to having access to that. So, in the US specifically, uh, we average 10 days off for one year's worth of work. There's only one country that's worse off than us. That's Micronesia at nine days. So we're literally in, in in the world second to last. But even worse than that, this measly two weeks that we get, only 50% of folks are taking that time. So we're not using the opportunities for renewal or enjoyment that, that we have accessible. And there are a whole host of reasons for that. I and mean, I've kind of been brought up in a meritocracy, right, where time is money, right? So if you're wasting time, if you're on vacation, you're not making money. And so that has become quite problematic. The other is that we really quantified happiness. And so once you do that, right, you know, especially in an academic context, which I think is now being looked at critically, you know, in psychology, we call it subjective well being. And let's say I want to measure your happiness, right, on a scale of zero to 10. Well, what happens when you have multiple tens in a row? And again, that's where I found myself in 2016 and something naturally, right? Because, you know, there's slings and arrows in life. Something knocks you off that 10. Now all of a sudden you have this deficit and because it's this quantifiable thing, it's not sustainable, right? And it's not just being content with how your life is going. So I think you're seeing it for both sides. One, we're just time poor, right? And we know that folks that live in time poverty tend to be unhappy. And unfortunately in the West, we're some of the most time poor individuals. Um, and then the other is that the more that we're kind of focusing on it, it's you know, it's like chasing a cat by its tail, right? The more we try to grasp it, the more elusive it is. So it's similar to what Tully talks about in The Power of Now. The less you try and find it, the more abundant it is in your life and that's not just a woo-woo thing, because I shy away from those types uh, assertions, you know, through just conjecture. We know that as a, as a fact, folks that constantly ruminate on concern burn up that energy that they could use to be enjoying time with their friends or doing something fun. You know, instead, they're kind of overly strategizing. And that's a really dark place to sit in your room and think about why <laughs> you're not happy. And what happens as a consequence is you start to see this gap between whatever happiness means. And again, maybe we'll get into it because you are a success expert, you know, because it's similar, right? I mean, what does, you know, if the goalpost is always moving, right? Because you don't, you really haven't defined what happiness means to you, you know, so that you can achieve it and stay there, then you're just gonna constantly look at this gap between where you're at and where you think happiness is, even if that goalpost is moving. And then what happens, and and we know this again through study, is that subconsciously that gap starts to bleed into your identity. You're like, well, if happiness is out there and I'm never there, then I must be an unhappy person. And unfortunately what happens, and again, that's why we know that there's a clinical response to this. You'll start to look for artifacts that support your identity. Like I just must be an unhappy person. And then it gets, it gets pretty dark from there.
0: Yeah. So there's a couple of things that you kind of just shared that I'd love to touch on. The first one, the first thing you talked about was how things kind of are different in the West and how happiness might vary from country to country. And I'm kind of curious as to why you think that is, if you think the individualistic societies might be different, but I'll let you take it and I won't load the question, but I'm just curious as to why you think things look so different in America as opposed to some other countries.
1: Well, you hit the nail on the head. And again, that's why I'd be excited to sort of explore the parallels of happiness and success. So what we know, and again, these are generalizations, right? But in individualistic societies, so not just necessarily the U S but where the focus is on meritocracy or sort of like, how do I succeed in this environment? Then everything is felt through the ego, right? Through the self. And so, when you're having a great day, you celebrate it, and you post it on Instagram, and you look for those likes and comments, right? Um, but then, when something bad happens, you tend to self-actualize it, and oftentimes, especially again, it's, it, it's a Western problem, but we won't seek out help, you know, especially males, right? And so, you're you sit there and wallow, and it can and can be this downward spiral. In collectivist countries, we tend to celebrate one another. So when, let's say, someone graduates from college, like the whole family feels like they graduated from college, you know, celebrate it as a family. And then if something bad happens, the same, it gets dissipated, the whole family feels it, which, you know, has its pros and cons. But it also means as an individual, you have more resilience, because you can share it through pro social behavior, you know, that you have a support system, right. And so again, these are generalizations, but they've been well studied, is that the highs and the lows, you know, are more even keeled. And so we know that, again, you know, this thing that where you're sort of the beacon of your life versus, you know, this collective experience you have when you live in a a more cultured uh, society and bicultured, I don't necessarily, you know, mean, grace and things like that. But I meant the fact that you share it through pro-social behavior of whatever your family dynamic looks like. It just tends to be enjoyed more. And again, you have resilience against things when things go wrong.
0: Yeah. And I I think a lot of that is obviously going to be rooted in more, it's not something that we can necessarily change tomorrow, say, for example, but is there, I guess, what, what would be a realistic next step that you could see our country or even businesses in our country doing? to be able to improve happiness or burnout or, well, specifically happiness. Um, No, but I I mean, I'm more in
1: tune with burnout because it's easier to quantify, you know, so from an academic sense, I think that's an easier proposition because we do know that, again, this isn't necessarily a benevolent initiative. You're seeing Fortune 500 companies in earnest now incentivizing people to take vacation because we know That both from a retention standpoint and a productivity standpoint, when folks become burnt out, you know, you start to see things like uh, absenteeism and presenteeism, right? And so we want to motivate people to be able to recharge their batteries, not just because it is the right thing to do, but also, you know, if we're trying to achieve certain goals, it certainly helps that. And you need that from a bottom-down approach. So I think it needs to be advocated by employees. And you're seeing that in earnest. I think lately, certainly the great resignation was a sign of that. You know, it kind of smoothed out. But it was certainly an indication coming out of the pandemic that I want more agency and autonomy over how I spend my time. And I think that was heard loud and clear. We now have hybrid environments, right, that are equitable on both sides. And then leaders allowing that to happen. And you're seeing strong leaders stand up for that, driven by some degree by thought leaders like myself and Adam Grant that are saying, like, this has benefits for both sides, but also just because it is the right thing to do. And servant leaders, you know, really do lean into that and try and allow for that type of flexibility. And then, you know, what's funny is that when you look at it more from not just social science, but also organizational science, when you have days where it's like okay this day is yours to spend it's going to be meet and free and you know we'll figure out whether or not you know for folks that are like in a service based business we'll see what the blowback is with clients like clients generally you know are more impressed and have a stronger bond with those companies and that's been shown over and over again so all of this has positivity around it and yet it's hard to implement because social norms are so hard right to unroot but i think You know, from that aspect of improving time poverty, that's one of the things that we can do. And then it's how do we create social structures in this evolving environment? So I don't have a dog in the fight with regards to spirituality, but one of the things that's happening as folks don't have these social structures like uh, church or um, community centers, you know, um, as we get more honed into our devices, right? And communication is all kind of artificial we're losing the ability to have pro-social relationships, which we just know, you know, uh, Robert wrote that great book, The Good Life, right? We know that that leads to loneliness, which doesn't just have an impact on our psychology. It clearly has physiological impacts that we don't quite understand, but we know that folks that are able to engage in relationships, however that looks, are some of the healthier people, um, and that's not just from Robert's work, the work that's been done with blue zones. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but countries that do have um, social structures. So it doesn't necessarily have to be religion, right? Like for um, Japan, it's just the ability, again, back to city centers where people can have coffee with each other and and talk about politics in a very you know friendly way. So whatever that looks like, I think that's the harder thing, right? So I gave you the easy one, right? It's like, hey... If it's as simple as incentivizing people to take vacations or enabling that and creating a safe space where it's like, you're okay taking a week off of work. You're not going to let down your employees. You know, that's kind of the the table stakes. The bigger one is how do we kind of undo some of what social media has done, right? Where we think that's connection, but it's clearly not. We're not producing oxytocin. We're not creating those neurochemicals that make us, you know, uh, feel like we're in a we situation. It's very much a see me in this situation and reintegrate ways where we can start to understand that we're all in this together.
0: Yeah. Have you ever read the book Lost Connections by Johan Hari?
1: I have it. I haven't read it yet.
0: Yeah, that's a really good one. And a lot of the things that you're saying kind of are reminding me of that as well. We don't need to dive into it, especially if you haven't read it yet, but that's another I, one. Read.
1: Yeah. Someone recommended it to me um, because I believe he digs into the city center, right? What happened when that kind of evolved out
0: yeah. And yeah. And he talks about all the, the the connections that we've kind of lost as a result and, and how that kind of has played a role in the increase in mental health problems and depression and suicide rates and being able to bring it back to some of those connections. One of them being the connections with other people, but he talks about some of the other ones as well. So yeah, that's a really great, really great book, and I, I always recommend it to people when the conversation comes up. One thing that you talk about in your book and the vacation part kind of reminded me of this as well, uh, is that you say in your book that happiness has less to do with our actual experience and more to do with how we think it compares to someone else's. And you referenced a couple of. Studies, one of them being about IQ, and then another one being that when people were given an option, people preferred to have four weeks of vacation knowing that others would have two rather than having six weeks of vacation knowing that others would have eight, which I was. I mean, I I kind of understood the IQ study. I was like, okay, that kind of makes sense. But when it came to vacation, I was very surprised. And one example, I think, and I kind of refer, like I kind of think of this as like a relative happiness factor. I don't know if that's a real word for it, but that's kind of what I think about it in my brain. Um, And I think one example of this is when we, when when it comes to social media, when we see people's highlight reel, and this is something it's always talked about, right? The highlight reel and comparison. But I think what really clicked with me this time when you explained how it has more to do with how we think it compares to other people is that the comparison game, specifically when it comes to social media, is going to make things worse because happiness is more about relativity than objective well-being. And I could see that being a, another big role in in why we're worse off as as a society too. Yeah.
1: Like I mentioned, we could spend three hours talking about all the headwinds, but that one in particular, I'm It's well understood, and that's why I like that study, but it is just human nature, right? We have this, in behavioral science, it's called loss aversion, and it plays out in so many different interesting ways, but that's one that's particularly nefarious. Um, You know, as I mentioned in the book, it's not like we all want to conquer one another, but we do want to feel like we're at the top of the heap, and some folks believe that that is because we've been groomed you know, in this meritocracy, right? Like we need to get the best grade so we can go to the best school and then get the best job. This is old Alan Watts type philosophy, right? So if that's true, then whatever action we take, like how is it going to be a little bit better than um, who we compare ourselves to? The problem with social media is that we can lie there. And if not lie, at least curate, right? So our parents' generation, the, the saying, keeping up with the Joneses has been here for quite some time, right? But your neighbor couldn't really lie, right? They might get a better lawnmower and they're like, oh, okay. You know, it was very pithy, right? But now it's this kind of artificial mechanism. One, the thing that's getting the most of this artificial currency, and by that, I mean like likes and comments, right? is going to bubble up to your feed. So it's not just your peers curating their life, but then it's Instagram and Facebook showing you what's getting the most attention. And that's constantly fed to you, especially the more that you spend on these platforms. So you're comparing yourself now to a false ideal. Again, our parents were comparing themselves and maybe that slight push. And again, you know, if we have time kind of juxtaposing it to success, because I think that type of stress when it's done subtly, can be helpful, right? I like being motivated by my peer group to sort of achieve things, you know, as long as that push is supportive. But in this mechanism that we have now, where these these apps on these devices don't really do it in an empathetic way, although they're trying now in earnest, now that it's been well-studied how powerful they are, right? And how much negative impact they are having on folks' psychology. It's happening in a way again, that is kind of lost control, right? And so, unless you're extremely disciplined and going, this is what I want, and perhaps using some of the access to media that you get to go, oh, okay, I'm gonna use this as research for things I wanna do and then go off and do it. If you kind of get stuck in that loop, right? And you're just always kind of seeing things that you wish you were doing and not sucking up the time to not do them, it can be, again, one of these opportunities to get yourself in a downward spiral.
0: Do you think social media has the same negative impact on other countries that it does on in the Western? I think it's,
1: yeah, it's certainly got global impact. I think it's taking folks away from opportunities to celebrate one another. Certainly each country is going to have its own idiosyncrasies. And then I've heard some interesting debate. I'm not educated enough to, to have it. But I think like, you know, there's some rumors that countries have manipulated that Algorithm in ways. I think this is levied at at China the most, where you're actually getting educational content. Where like in the states, it's showing things you know that are very material and you know wants of the self. Where like kids in China are getting the algorithm is meant to be more uplifting. So I find that interesting. I think that's more in, in, in the you know uh, arena of conspiracy theories, but. Regardless, algorithms are going to tune themselves to the social norms of any given culture. So I certainly think you're going to see, you know, the impact be different in different ways. But regardless, it's clear that, you know, no matter where you're at, it, it can be problematic if you're using it as a mechanism to worry about what others are doing.
0: Definitely. What are, what are your thoughts about how fun varies, like the perception of fun from America and other countries? So it's interesting
1: you say that. I think, again, this work comes from Jeannie Sai, And one of the things I had to unpack, because I very much like high arousal fun. So for me, that's a good fit. But again, in the West, we celebrate high arousal fun so much as being quote unquote fun. You know, So like ads are folks like running these big old smiles at a rock concert or a rave or whatever it is. And so if that's fun, folks that not are necessarily introverted, but like low arousal fun, like reading a good book or just chilling by the pool, are like, oh, I must not be a fun person because I don't identify, you know, with this constant, you know, marketing stuff that's showing me what fun people do. And again, that's like less of a dramatic headwind than some of what we've discussed, but it certainly does have an impact because once someone's like okay, well, this must be what fun is and I'm far from it, then they can start to feel like they're an unfun person. But as you know from the book, fun is quite frankly just enjoying what you're doing. So if that's your jam, you're just as fun as someone that's crowd surfing at a Rage Against the Machine concert or whatever it is. And so I find that's one of the sadder things I think that was uncovered in my research is just the fact that a lot of us really do have these interesting ways to enjoy ourselves. And yet, you know, we've kind of been led to believe that that's not what fun is. And so to answer your question, I certainly think that's true. You know, it's been unpacked by various people, like some of the, I forget, I think it was Aziz Azari who was talking about Equinox ads and just how crazy they are. And you would never see that in more reserved countries because that's one, not really that interesting. And two, sort of a perverse version of fun versus you know, us that kind of, you know, that sort of stuff in the West tends to draw people in and not be as offensive.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you brought up that because I also, and I'm not sure if this is a majority of Americans or, or what it is, but before reading your book, I also always associated fun with high arousal activities. And so I'm glad that you kind of in a way debunked it in the book. Are there different benefits that we get from a high arousal fun activity versus a low arousal fun activity?
1: Yeah, I think it's preference. So that was sort of at the edge of intimately understanding extroversion and introversion, because again, these are just somatic ways to like cluster things, right? To cluster wisdom. And the way that we define introverts in science has a bigger tent than just the emotional science around arousal preference because there's certainly extroverts that still just want to be part of a book club, like they want to be around people. So these are two separate constructs, right? But I think if you have a proclivity to wanting to do high arousal things and then you're always, you know, doing low arousal things, maybe because of your partnership or whatever, you're going to get bored, right? And so when we look at flow somewhat being a component of how we enjoy things, especially, you know, once we feel this sense of selflessness and kind of, you know, time dissipating and it's like, we're just really in it and really enjoying it. You sort of need that arousal to match what your preference is. And then also feel like you're skilled at that. This comes from self-determination theory. And and I don't want to geek out too much in the science, but to answer your question, uh, similar to introversion and extroversion, If you're going against your preference, eventually it's going to fatigue on you, right? Arousal is the same way. I mean, if you're always doing high arousal stuff, even though you have a preference towards it, you're going to get tired, right? And then the opposite is true. If you're always just lying on the beach, even though that's your jam, like eventually you're going to, I think I even referenced that in the book, you want to get up and do something eventually. So all of us are going to have that set point. That's kind of the, the magic spot, but I don't know if that addresses your question, but I, I do think it's clear that if you have a preference towards something, being in alignment with that preference is going to make you more content than it would if you're always you know, sort of abiding to something that's not necessarily in your preference zone.
0: Yeah. And I like that you bring up too, like, e- even if you are naturally someone who prefers a high arousal activities, there is still a balance that you you want to find. Well, and I think novelty
1: too, right? It's clear that we can lose interest in things that we do too habitually. If you're a dancer and that's what you love, even then you might want to take a a break, something that sort of puts less load on your limbic system, you know, so that you do have these times for renewal, but there are going to be others that, if you're always kind of nudged into these like strenuous hikes, you're like, what is that? <laughs> I have no business being here. And that's going to lead to some pretty awful times, right? So you're going to know, you know, what's right for you. And then what I like is when I see in strong partnerships, when there is like a mix match, and that's certainly what I found in my marriage, because then when I'm ready for that, like, hey, let me join you. And then, you know, you also have these opportunities for solo activity where you're like, this is my thing. I'm doing it the way I want to do it. Again, I really do believe, and it's a science based assertion that variety is a spice of life. So you know you can integrate those things that you might not necessarily do and look at them as these moments of opportunities to you know flex your curiosity and be like, "All right, well, this isn't what I normally do, but let me enjoy it in this moment,
0: yeah, And from a health perspective, too, I would imagine that it's it's healthy to have a balance. the last person I interviewed she was she talked about how she was always on go, go, go mode when it came to work, when it came to things that even, even if it's something that you love and don't necessarily view as work, that's sometimes the problem that I would run into when it comes to high arousal activities is that, you know, I might perceive this as fun, whether it's work, whether it is fun, that it might be putting a strain on my nervous system. And I not, I might not realize that until it's too late. So even though I might have a preference for a high arousal activity, it may not be the best for me to only do high arousal activities. And I could say not necessarily the same, but flip-flop, but there are other cons to probably just doing low arousal activities as well.
1: Yeah, I would delineate the two, Um, but you're certainly right in that we're learning that folks that kind of are getting addicted to more the anticipation, like overloading their dopamine receptors, that can be problematic. That's more like chasing the next risk. So that's kind of a little bit different than, you know, let's say, you know, always wanting to play pickleball or whatever. So you do need to be careful there. And then certainly always kind of worrying about the next thing. Again, like looking at the central nervous system and the limbic system. um, If you're always in fight, flight, or freeze, um, we know that's quite problematic. I mean, you know, we see a correlation, a higher correlation to immune disorders. And I'm sure that's unpacked in a much better way. In your previous episodes, we'll leave... Listeners to to check that out, but then with low arousal activity, this research comes from Dr. Cassie Holmes out of UCLA. If you're kind of, she calls it the Goldilocks spot, for more than five hours a day, that's when you start to weird questions start to pop up, right? Like, am I living a purposeful and meaningful life? And I think most people would find themselves starting to get uneasy about the amount that they're relaxing. So again, it's all about blend and balance. But I think. You know, the reason that I felt the book came out at the right time is you are finding, as you you know, nodded to, this is the worst year for most vocations with regards to burnout. So it's clear that we're just not finding time to do anything. And so, you know, having a bias towards things that you enjoy rather than feeling that you're always living your life as a have to do or, you know, in the duty of others, at least right now, it's a timely course correction.
0: Definitely. And so one of the one of the principles that you talk about, and it kind of goes into c- being able to categorize these different activities that we do that we might consider fun based off of their level of of challenge and the fun, is the play model, which I, I'd love to talk about a little bit. So the challenge, which is kind of the investment, more of the input, and then the fun, which is more of the reward and the output that we get from these different activities. So it's the pleasing, living, agonizing, and yielding. I'd love if you could just share a little bit more about each of these categories and the way you kind of created this model um, and examples of what that could look like as well.
1: Definitely. And you really did your homework, so I appreciate it. (laughs) Usually they're like, (laughs) what is the play model? And explain it from (laughs) beginning (laughs) to end. So pleasing is the category and the science comes from the fact that we know when people are mind wandering, they tend to be generally unhappy right and so mind-wandering is when we aimlessly go through our day and we are not really actualizing like the joy that you know inherent in our life so pleasing could be having coffee with a friend some of the work that you do right like some of the more exciting things time with dogs time with your hobby where you're not necessarily like pushing the limits of your mastery but just really enjoying the craft so many of us have sort of engineered those things out of our life, you know, especially young professionals and folks that we find in the sandwich generation, which is folks that have young children, but that are also caring for aging parents. They just don't prioritize those things, even though we know those are the things that add to the vigor and vitality that we would have to be able to enjoy the entire week. So making sure some of those are in your schedule become important. Living is, as you mentioned, the things that take higher challenge. Those are really the things that push us just outside our comfort zone so that we can grow. And a lot of folks have found because they are so burnt out that they just don't even want to think about those types of activities. So at least acknowledging their importance and how they help us learn things about ourselves and lead to immense enjoyment if you're engaging in that type of behavior to master a new skill. Or for folks that are spiritual, engaging in a spiritual practice where things like deep meditation that are leading to potentially things like transcendence, if those things are devoid in your life, becoming aware of that and figuring out how you might integrate some of those back in can lead to better self-development. Agonizing—we don't need to spend a lot of time. Most people are really aware of what's agonizing in their life. But I think when you look at those activities critically, generally they're ways to improve your situation. I've gotten accused a little bit um, for, you know, the book dripping with privilege because I have talked about outsourcing, and I totally get that. You know, a lot of folks aren't necessarily going to be able to use strategies like that. But I think. When you peel back getting creative about how to improve your circumstance instead of just complaining about it, oftentimes that can lead to much better outcomes, especially for those tasks, right? And then lastly is yielding, and we have talked about that a lot on the podcast, and those are things that are just kind of mind-numbing. So oftentimes why we think they're fun is because they're displacing discomfort, right? You don't want to think about your day. So you just kind of plop down on the couch and either channel surf Netflix or, you know, get on social media. And the next thing you know, it's time to go to bed and you don't know where those hours went because you know, especially social media is devised to steal our attention. That's why they call it the attention economy. And when I talk about watching television, because I really enjoy television, I'm not talking about watching your favorite show, you know, with your partner or even by yourself. And if I were to talk to you a week from now you could tell me in rich detail how amazing it was for me. Currently, that shows Ted Lasso. I could tell you show by show, you know how that went, because I'm really engaged in that. What I'm talking about is slipping through channels, and you wouldn't be able to tell me anything about what happened within that time. We know that that doesn't lead to renewal. That essentially you're just pacifying that time, and it can be as bad as staying awake, right? And then sometimes it becomes habitual, it can actually lead to things like insomnia. So finding ways to reduce those things in the agonizing yielding category, and then potentially replacing them with things that you know are going to light you up can help build an upward spiral instead of keeping you in that downward spiral that we've been talking about.
0: So I know you mentioned just now replacing it as kind of a a tool to be able to break that habit. Are there any other ways or suggestions that you have to be able to break the habit of passive leisure?
1: Yeah, I think you really do need to replace it with that activity, right? In the book I talk about, this has been used in a whole host of ways, but it really does come from addiction science. So we know when someone's trying to break a bad habit, really the best way to do that is to make sure it's replaced. So Once you kind of clear, you know, the space in your calendar for when you were, you know, engaging in those types of activities and for anyone that kind of wants to look at it as a, you know, at a glance, most phones, you know, it's hidden, but, you know, quick Google search will allow you to see how much time you spend on those apps. So oftentimes it's not social media, right? Sometimes when folks are aware of how often they're using these tools, it could be email. Like, do you really need to be on Gmail 18 hours out of your 168? And oftentimes the answer is no, because that would be half your workday, right? That you're in email. And so that would give you at least a clue of what you could potentially, you know, what dial to move. So it's looking at things like that. But to answer your question, why it becomes important to replace those activities with something else is we generally fall back into our habitual behavior. We're humans, right? And Mm so it really, one of the best ways is not to create that space. It's really, okay, create the space and then what can I do that would be more rewarding for me? And if you don't feel like getting out of your house right away, uh, replace it with like a book that really fills you up. You know, something that's gonna keep your attention. Again, we kind of talked about when we overtax those dopamine receptors. Unfortunately, these things were built by amazing behavioral scientists, right? So they really, they use what we call a a variable reward. And so even though it doesn't seem like it, scrolling that feed is the same thing as pulling the arm on a a slot machine. You know, you're waiting for that next funny meme or that, you know, that picture from a friend. And so, There are deeper strategies that we could get into, you know, curating a list of folks that you really care about instead of just letting these apps sort of feed what you want. You can time bound or time block your time spent on it. Cause I, I like social media. So certainly not saying, you know, delete your apps, but say, you know, I'm only going to spend 30 minutes on this. And then, you know, the next hour I'm going to you know, I'm going to engage in a, in a book or an online course, or preferably, you know, engage in pro-social behavior, have a standing date with a friend or your partner. You know, a lot of partners don't have dates with their spouse anymore. And so that's another thing that I think is kind of low hanging fruit. Like let's just get one or two nights a month, even on the calendar and just scheduling it is enough, right? Like, okay, let's rehabitualize this behavior. Cause it's a lot more healthy than us sitting on opposite sides of the couch scrolling our social media feeds, which again, I'm throwing a huge rock at a glass house. Like my wife and I will course correct about every four to six months because we'll find ourselves, you know, it's easy to fall back into bad habits and we know it's not invigorating. I mean, we're just in such a better place when we're able to, you know, share a day with each other. So, and that doesn't just have to be a partner, you know, that, that could be a friend too, for all the reasons that we've discussed. We know that when we get out and feel connected to something bigger than ourselves, even if that's just our friendships, we feel better.
0: Definitely. And, and so right now we're talking about the one aspect of the play model. Do you see there being an ideal ratio for somebody to have of the, of the pleasing of the living of the agonizing of the yielding? Cause I mean, obviously we can't completely lean it out and take out any one of those. Is there an ideal ratio?
1: Not a ratio per se. Um, Because I think, you know, it's going to be dependent on what your work life's like. Certain people are going to have different demands. Certainly what I've studied the most is physicians. So to say that I can get rid of most of the agonizing things in your day is not correct. So that would fall in the realm of toxic positivity, which I really try to stay away from. So I think, you know, it's going to be important for you to figure out what that is. I generally try to start with this framework of 168 hours, right? Because it's really easy to play with. If you're not even finding three hours where you have complete control over your domain, then you want to start there. And that's because I generally work with parents that are just don't have that in their schedule. So how can we figure out how to make that space for you? Because it's generally achievable. Then I fall back again on science from Dr. Cassie Holmes of that sweet kind of Goldilocks spot. Like you want, if you have complete control over your schedule, at least two hours a day of things that you really enjoy that light you up where you have complete control. even if it is work, you have complete control over the product. It's not outcome focused. And then once you get past the five hour range, like you might, well, one, lucky you, and i I applaud you. But you might want to figure out, okay, wow, this might be a little too much, and what can I do to have some activities that lead to fulfillment and betterment and have a positive impact? if, you know, you're privileged enough that you're not worried about income.
0: Definitely. And I, I see that as a really great tool and takeaway that people can have and, and physically do right now. Um, and I actually, at the end of each of my episodes, I have the guests create a challenge that anybody can do that relates to our conversation. So I would love if you could either create a challenge or that can be the challenge as well. Um, something that people can do this week or today that gets them closer to this.
1: Yeah, I generally do uh, leave with that challenge that, you know, just look at the previous 168 hours. I'll give you a link um, that you can put in show notes. I created a Google sheet that makes that really easy and it's not gated or anything. I'll just give you the link and, you know, be really mindful of how you're spending your time. I think just that insight, right, it is really illuminating because most people are like, ah, you know, they either feel so time poor that it's like, I can't find time anywhere. And it's like, really, you can't because you've been on Instagram for eight hours, you know, last 168. Or they find situations of convenience. It's like, wow, I have done that every week, right? Like maybe a group that's not lighting them up anymore or, you know, something that they just kind of standardized but isn't enjoyable that they, you know, where they could flip the script. So that's kind of a low level entryway into uh, some of this work is just, you know, being mindful of how you're spending your time and then using the play model to potentially integrate some things that are more enjoyable. And then I'll give you the link in the show notes for the fun file because you know you also want to brainstorm some things in case you do feel stuck. Like, well, I just don't know what fun is anymore. Like, okay, well we can, we can get you there too.
0: Yeah. And I love that concept, the the fun file. And one thing I wanted to, to touch on too, that I thought was, it just reminded me of this is another conversation that I had with somebody. It was with Charles Scott in my episode with him. We talked about seeking vitality and we talked about time poverty and we think that we sometimes need to add more time to our day, especially when we're really busy. That's a big commitment, but also thinking about, okay, what am I doing that I could even change to make it more fun? What, what am I doing during even my job, for example, how could I make that more meaningful? How could I find more about vitality by just, you know, whether it's becoming a mentor at work or there are a lot of examples that we could bring up. Um, no, but you bring up a
1: great point. So, you know, you don't want making or, you know, finding time for fun activities to just be another sort of bullet on your to-do list, because again, that falls in the realm of toxic positivity and can create moral injury, quite frankly, right? Like, if you're in a space where you can't add another thing to your busy schedule, like, let's not start there. Like, to your point, it's really interesting when we look at building systems, you know, whether personally or even just the way that we kind of operate throughout life. You're exactly right. It's always like, what else can I add on to make things better? And not often enough do we go, what can I remove? Like, what's not working for me? So that's certainly where you want to start, right? Like to become mindful of the things that you're doing. But then let's start with, I don't need to add anything on. I need to get rid of some of this, you know, so that I do have the space to add things back in. One, that creates, you know, the emotional flexibility to be able to do the work. But then also it's just a much better place to operate because it's clear. Yeah. To your point, and y- y- you've alluded to it a few times that if we become too busy, nothing is fun at that point, you know? So.
0: Yeah. And, and sometimes it seems like a big, a big task to to maybe take things out. So even if you just adjust it, that's also really great. Yeah. I'd love if you could share the fun file as well. Cause I know that's, and, and specifically, I'm not sure if you have in that link, but I like how you talk about also creating a long list, but then also a short list to make it realistic and being able to do things right away. Well, I'm also curious, what is on your short list right now?
1: So I've really been leaning into, you know, taking, and I don't, we'll just talk about activity bundling instead of the whole toolkit, but um, really enjoying time with the kids, you know, uh, it's summer. And so yeah. Um, you know, being from California about here in North Carolina, uh, we're going to all take uh, surf camp together. So finding ways to enjoy like paths to mastery that we can both do. And I think why that's cool as a parent is that oftentimes when we're trying to teach our kids something as a parent, like we become the teacher and they're the student. And so they do something wrong. You know, there could be these punitive aspects, but when you're enjoying the learning process with them, they kind of see you as kids. So you get in this more playful spirit. And then two, if something goes wrong, you can both blame the teacher. You know, so just, I don't, I find it a lot more enjoyable. So even though it's not my jam, again, how we talk about intermixing things that we might not do. I'm going to take a Minecraft class with my son. And then um, I keep taking cooking classes with my daughter. And then we're all going to take surfing classes together. So all fun activities, you know, some by my own choosing and then some by their choosing but yeah that's that's my jam right now.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of the a lot of value in your book specifically that parents could use so I'm excited. I mean, I'm not a parent yet, but even just talking about how like the way that we kind of think about playing with our kid and I'd say our kids, I don't have kids, but <laughs> I'm sure you have nieces and nephews. Yeah, right? I do. I do. And I I can definitely take some of those practices for them too. And you don't need to sit on your phone while they play with toys. Like they will be interested in the things that you'll be interested in. I mean, we could go on and have a whole separate episode about that. But I'll just add though that your fun file, I want to add that as a challenge as well, because that's something that I think I, like I started it immediately on my notes page on my mm-hmm. phone when I heard about it. And so that's another really great thing that people can start as well. So. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you so much for the tools and the insight. Where else can people find you? I know that you have your website, you have your book, but where is the best place for people to find you?
1: No, you nailed it. So um, michaelrecord.com is the website. I've been taking my own advice and not been on social as much as maybe I should as an author trying to promote a book, but um, I write quite a bit. And then all the things that I write for trade, like psychology today and whatnot, can be found. You know via the website and then obviously the book the fun habit is out now it just hit paperback so it's more accessible yeah thanks for the opportunity to share that
0: well thank you yeah thank you so much for for coming on here i i really appreciate it absolutely thanks for having me